Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, FCS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And today, a massive, one of the arguably the biggest in the country, uh, true crime story that we have uh, not covered for a while because there hasn't been a ton of news. But now uh, some things are funneling out of uh, Idaho in regards to uh, Brian Koberger. Um, no decision. He was back in the courtroom uh, this week uh, on Wednesday, yesterday, uh, but no decision was made to set a trial date uh, for Brian Koberger. Of course, he is suspected of murdering those four young, uh, beautiful students with their lives ahead of them. Um, a hearing is now going to be held in May to determine whether to move the proceedings elsewhere. So you've got a trial date and a change of venue. Uh, there was some anticipation anticipation that they would decide on those things at yesterday's hearing, but no go. Uh, Koberger, of course, was back in court in front of John Judge, uh, Judge, uh, Judge jo John Judge. That is very hard to say, Judge Judge. Uh, Judge Judge said a May 14th hearing, uh, as I said, to sort of figure out, do they or don't they have to move uh, this venue, uh, the jurors, um, and move the whole trial elsewhere, and we will get the best guest take on that. Meanwhile, a man who has been very busy over the last couple of days, Kevin Fixler. He is an investigative reporter with the Idaho Statesman. Uh, he was named Reporter of the Year in Idaho in large part because of a lot of the work he has done uh, related to Brian Koberger. And um, I don't know if you heard this or not, but there was a botched. Um, uh, execution yesterday in the state of Idaho, and Kevin Fixler was covering that story. So we'll talk about that as well. Um, and he also wrote extensively about how uh, specifically investigative genetic genealogy can um, really shape the future of this particular trial, but also all trials, all cases involving IgG which is investigative genetic genealogy. So we will talk about that as well. Uh, Jean Fisher, notably, she retired after 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office. She started basically right out of law school, uh, was involved in the uh, sexual assault unit and uh, is a voice of reason, especially when it comes to the uh, machinations of prosecutors all around this country last but certainly not least tara malik i like the background i'm just noticing it because it was so chaotic <laughs> it looks very idaho cabin-esque um tara is an idaho licensed attorney practicing in both state and federal court in business and commercial litigation uh she has experience in both civil and criminal law of course um every time we start these and i am uh looking for my uh questions there. It is important to remember, of course, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, who were best friends, and then, of course, Zana Kernodal um, and Ethan Chapin, who were boyfriend and girlfriend, their lives taken way too soon. Um, Gene Fisher, uh, you're the longstanding prosecutor. There was all this anticipation. There'll be a trial date. By the way, I'm supposed to shout out Daddy Shortnuts. Daddy Shortnuts. He wrote us a uh, an email about the derivation of his name. It's not what you think. His little son gave it to him. 
and uh, he's been watching the show and uh, thank him for being on here. Uh, I like the hat, Joel. Uh, this was um, not intentional, just a super busy day on my end. By the way, Carm and I, we started recording. Um, it's a whole Miami story. I found out about this place, didn't know if it was legit. They were telling me to sell money. I'm like, I'm not selling money to a place. Show up there. It's like the nicest recording studio in the middle of nowhere in a warehouse district. And I find out that Kanye West recorded his last studio at this place. Um, very Miami, though. Um, and Carm was in this recording studio. And there was a smell of marijuana. I'm not going to lie. A very thick, pungent smell of marijuana. Didn't phase Carm in the least. We got through 40 pages of the book. Uh, there's like 260 more to go, but we'll get there. Anyway, Gene, no trial date yet set. There was all this anticipation. Are you surprised by that? I am actually really surprised at this point. I think um, these poor families must be almost out of their minds over this. And I'm I'm a little perplexed at the at the idea that they want to decide the venue before they want to set the jury trial. I've just, I've never in my practice, I've never had that happen before. Um, we've always set the trial and then um, there might even, in my experience, there might even be a, a questionnaire that goes out or something that helps assist the judge determine, you know, if, if they can actually pick something in that, in that County. But um, so this seems backwards to me, and I just, I've just never seen it done this way before. And it just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And I, I, I am, at this point, I am really surprised. Hmm. Uh, Tara Malik, you know, he's back in court in his suit. And it's uh, it's interesting because um, I'm, I'm following this case of Shanna Gardner, who's accused of a murder-for-hire plot against her ex-husband. And she allegedly did it with her now estranged new husband. And in court... They're allowing they, they have these court dates together and she's in street clothes, you know, and looks <laughs> dignified. And he's always in a jumpsuit. Um, what is the usual protocol in Idaho? Because every time we see Koberger, you know, the hair slicked back, he's in a suit looking respectable. Um, is that SOP in Idaho or if you're being detained, Jean shaking her head? No. But uh, Tara, what, what's up with that? I, it's very unusual. That's not how uh, things usually operate. I, I think, you know, early on, a lot of us were, were kind of talking in the background attorneys and that's not been our experience. Um, you know, one, one, uh, hypothesis is because that it is, you know, portions of this have been televised, the, the pretrial motion kind of practice back and forth, the discovery motion practice back and forth, uh, that maybe they're, they're trying to not take the potential jury pool, but this is very unusual, uh, normally they're coming in in jumpsuits. Um, so surprised to see him in a suit still, but that's been pretty consistent. Uh, I think after his first court appearance where he was in a jumpsuit after that, it was all suits from there on. Uh, Fix, I'm going to not throw you under the bus, but give you the uh, harder thing to answer here because it's a little pol political or critical in nature. Um, NJ Elaine, weak judge, followed by Michelle, who says, judge, judge, Seems easily swayed by the defense. I remember at the beginning, he got all the names of the victims uh, wrong or partially wrong. Um, is this a fair criticism? Like, do you think he has command of what is going on right now? Um, and I know you were busy with uh, this um, execution yesterday, which we're going to talk about. But in general, uh, what is the consensus about Judge Judge? 
Good question. I, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, he's got a lot to wrap his mind around. He's had to learn what IgG is. He's had to understand, um, you know, what a cast report is. He's, uh, I'm actually not certain that he's overseen a capital punishment case before. So, you know, the spotlight is on him. I think there's uh, a lot of motions from both sides that he's ha had to contemplate. And um, I, I actually, I mean, personally, I will offer my opinion here. I think he's handled this fairly well. Uh, he sort of understands the magnanimity of the case and understands potential precedents that can be set. I do think he has provided a little bit of a leash to the defense, but I think that, again, is uh, with a mind that this is a death penalty case, and he's trying, he has stated, to prevent potential appeals down the road. Hmm. Um, Gene, back to you. So a quote from Judge Judge yesterday, uh, he said, I'm listening carefully to both sides, and it's a complicated case. It's a death penalty case, and that's what um, the fix was just alluding to. Now, in a prior, uh, at a prior time, I think it was um, last year, Ann Taylor, about a change of venue, said, and I quote here, a fair and impartial jury cannot be found in Lataw County um, owing to the extensive inflammatory pretrial publicity. Allegations made about Mr. Koberger to the public by media that will be inadmissible at his trial, the small size of the community, the salacious nature of the alleged crimes and the severity of the charges Mr. Koberger faces. Uh, that was written in a January court filing. Um, she makes some pretty good points, but are they going to be deemed um, accurate in terms of the legal system? Do you think ultimately, because of the massive nature of this case, that it will have to be moved um, to a different venue? Well, um, I mean, part of the stuff that she wrote, wrote in that motion shouldn't mean much to the judge. I mean, these aren't salacious details they are the details it's a horrible crime it's a you know four people were brutally murdered um you can't get away from you know the, the scene what happened those kids their ages um you know so some of what she wrote is like well yeah it's a terrible crime um and you're never going to get away from that the bigger problem really is just Lataw county is a very small county and without the university i mean it gets even smaller when the university students go you know go home for break but otherwise I, you know the county itself is relatively small um and a lot of people that are there uh, work for the university or are closely connected um it's it's certainly yet to be seen whether or not this is something that Laytalk county can handle um as far as finding a um uh, uh, an impartial jury. Um, I understand why, um, you know, Bill Thompson is fighting hard to keep it there um, if he can. Um, but I think it's, I still think it's going to be very difficult uh, to find a jury in Lataw County, given the size and the magnitude of this case. Um, um, yeah. 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 I would agree with you about that. Um, just to stay on this for a moment uh, to Tara from Jen S always great questions. If you have a question, put in that triple Q uh, Jen S writes, Tara, today it seemed as if Ann Taylor is running the show, meaning during the hearing. Can you provide any insight about how Judge Judge runs his courtroom? I know you're not um, inside the courtroom, but, you know, Ann Taylor is a well-known um, figure in Idaho and one of few death certified 
uh, defense attorneys. Does she get kind of extra clout or street cred, if you will, because of that? Well, I mean, I'll say this. I mean, it, Idaho is a small um, state as far as attorneys and the, and the bar. Uh, and so we're pretty familiar with each other. Most attorneys are. And so it's easy to develop a reputation. Um, overall, you know, she is one of few attorneys in the state that are death penalty certified at, and I think maybe the only one out of North Idaho or one of, um, maybe two or three. So, um, she's a competent attorney. She's, uh, one that is regarded as a competent attorney. She's dealt with, um, complicated cases before, but I wouldn't say that, that she's running the show. I think, you know, it, this is as much as previously, this is a high profile case. It's a death penalty case. Um, the judge is going to be very careful about making sure that both sides get the opportunity to present their arguments on each one of those motions that are going before the court. And, you know, just because she's speaking longer in court doesn't necessarily mean that number one, she's going to get her way. Um, but number two, that, um, you know, that there's some sort of deference being given to her. The judge has an obligation to make sure that each side is able to fully present their arguments on each one of these motions. So I don't think that Judge Judge is any different from anybody else. Uh, any other judge that we have, I think that he's just being very cautious to make sure that, you know, all of the I's are being dotted, all of the T's are being crossed, because in a death penalty case, um, there will likely be, if there is a conviction, there will likely be an appeal. And so you want to make sure that all of these steps are being followed uh, so you don't have a reversal and, and have to retry the whole thing, especially in a case like this where you've got these victims' families who've been you know, having to go through this once already. By the way, there's Kaylee on the left. You've got Ethan uh, Madison and, of course, Anna Kernodal. Um, always sad to see their faces and i remember uh seeing uh stacy chapin at CrimeCon, and uh very very sad for the families indeed um fix you know the um the state was looking for you know we were talking last time about maybe a trial over the summer you know when school lets out so it'd be less um stress on the traffic and all that so we're literally talking summer of 2024 but the defense wants this trial uh, pushed basically to um, a year from now to like March of 2025, March 3rd of uh, 2025. Um, that seems a long ways away and even more pain for the families of these victims. But is it necessary because of all that's involved in the fact that it is death penalty, uh, death penalty case? Well, I mean, those have been the arguments from the defense, certainly. They've talked about the the reams and reams of uh, information they're receiving through discovery. They've talked about delays in receiving some of that information from the defense. Uh, there was a long, drawn-out, eight-month battle over the uh, investigative genetic genealogy records, as an example. Um, if uh, listeners, watchers will recall, there was the battle over the grand jury records, which were under seal. And you know, what the defense was entitled to. Uh, so that we, we've seen these things play out. I mean, these are sort of the typical motions, I believe. Um, you know, we have two attorneys on with us. They could speak to that on the timeframes. But as far as the overall timeframe, anybody who has been following uh, the Daybell cases, the Lori 
Valo case, uh, yeah. one of them, th those took years to come to trial. So I know that we assumed, at least initially, before Brian Koberger waived his right to a speedy trial within six months, we assumed that that would happen, that, that you know, the, the trial would occur for the laymen, including someone such as myself, who before this had not covered a lot of criminal justice issues, uh, including in the courtroom. Um, but I, I, after that happened, you know, it, it opened this long pathway for when the trial could occur. You did have the state say, you know, they, they preferred it to happen in the summer and they were looking to have that happen in 2024. And then you, again, had the defense say, well, you know, let's pump the brakes here. There's so much information we still don't know. They would have to prepare for uh, if there is a conviction, the mitigation component of the death penalty case, and they go back to back. Uh, they have to be prepared for arguing against the death penalty uh, during sentencing if, in fact, a jury were to convict Brian Goberger, and they need time in order to prepare. So that's, I think, how we ended up with this length of time. Uh, if it's going to stay in Latok County, uh, Bill Thompson had argued that, you know, we really prefer it be in the summer because the the courtroom is right across the street from the local high school. And, uh, you know, also with deference to the U of I, the University of Idaho, and the students not having to go through this all over again with uh, a trial and, you know, the expected media circus and everyone else who may just show up and, and want to watch this as if it's a, a daytime drama. Uh, well put. Uh, and I think a lot of people do. Uh, I think we, we're all um, guilty of of sometimes forgetting that there are real victims involved here, but four very real victims and all their families. Uh, look at this. Kerry Rawson, not only a friend of the show, a friend of mine. Uh, hi, everyone. Miss you all. Kerry's been busy uh, kind of hiding underground, so I'm glad to see her above ground right now. Any insight, Gene Fisher, into Judge Judge referring to Koberger's family having protections and Ann Taylor's request to question them further? Any guesses? on uh, what might be behind that? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I know with the, with the genealogy, um, I mean, that's one of the big issues is, is um, individuals' rights to privacy, whether or not they give their blood to those genealogy charts and whether or not, you know, like the 23andMe and some of those where you can't use them for criminal means, but there are other sites that you can. And the reason that the judge was not going to just allow all of this out is there's, you know, a lot of people that would be drawn into this unnecessarily that clearly had nothing to do with the case, um, but they're maybe part of their DNA shows up. So I, I don't know if that's in part what he's talking about. Um, I, you know, I know that this, I, I know that the genealogy is very complicated and there are some big constitutional questions that are going to be resolved or, you know, at least litigated here in Idaho. Um, but I'm having a hard time understanding how it's actually not going to come in. I mean, I, I see it coming in. Um, I don't see the constitutional issue that the Koberger thinks that he has ultimately. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this, how this pans out, but I think that's what he's talking about, but I'm not sure. And I didn't, I wasn't at the hearing. Maybe Kevin knows more about if there was something else that was mentioned. I don't know. Well, the fix wasn't at the hearing either because the fix was uh, busy covering, but the fix, did you want to add that's something right. to that? Yeah, I mean, it's possible that, as I was saying, the, the mitigation elements, uh, Ann Taylor had raised the point uh, at the prior hearing that, uh, you know, in order to provide effective counsel, they needed it to go even three generations back as far as information about Brian Koberger in order to, you know, make arguments that, um, again, if there is a conviction that uh, 
you know, if you were responsible for this, that, uh, you know, there were mitigating factors. He had this uh, neurological issue. He, you know, who knows? Uh, you would need to speak to the family to get the details about his upbringing, essentially, and, and you know, go way back. So that may be what they're talking about. Uh, look at this. Abby Tahahaha. She's always present on our Friday shows. Hey, all. This is a case, the case that brought me to you at STS. And uh, for those of you who are interested, we're actually doing uh, Phil and Scott tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time, because um, Carmen and I have to record and uh, Phil wasn't too happy, but I convinced him to uh, do a 5 p.m. We're going to be talking about Mercedes Vega. If you don't know the name, Google her. Uh, she was murdered, a 22-year-old a woman, um, I believe it's Arizona. I get confused between Arizona and Texas. My apologies, but uh, her case has gone unsolved. And it's um, someone just mentioned it to me. Um, and I do read a lot of the comments and a lot of the tweets and all that. And I found it very interesting. So uh, Mercedes Vega tomorrow with Scott and Phil, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Tara Malik, this is the way of the world today. I follow you on Instagram, Tara. Uh, do you think because of social media and trial streaming, that finding a uh, jury, uh, that finding juries and the procedures and expectations have changed as a result of the social media aspect. Um, yes, I mean, I, I would say, so if we're talking about jury selection, if that's what they mean by jury procedures, I mean, certainly um, how information is exchanged now, how quickly it's exchanged has definitely changed the way that we do things. And I, I think for prosecutors and for defense attorneys, it just adds a, another element that you need to be aware of as you're presenting your case and selecting your jury. So, you know, one of these concerns, one of the issues, the change of venue, for instance, like pretrial publicity alone doesn't, doesn't give, um, someone a right, an absolute right to a change of venue. But but certainly if there's, you know, some degree um, that's shown through affidavits or likewise that prejudice might occur, and that can come through social media, um, that certainly weighs into it. And I think especially in this case, in the small community, I think small communities just have a different dynamic. I think that information uh, travels, believe it or not, even more rapidly in a small community, both because of the nature of them and also because of social media. I mean, people are three or four or five degrees removed because they're coworkers or friends or neighbors. So um, I, I think so. I mean, I, I definitely think that that is the case. And uh, Tara, since you answered that so well, let me give you a, I'm going to get to that COE. Thank you so much hearing from the defense, but let me give you a question that you can't answer. Um, Jody Arrington, parents know their kids. I wonder how Brian Koberger's parents feel about Brian and if they deep inside believe he did this what's your what's your intuition tell tell you about that um that's a tough question and i don't think it can really be answered but um do you think they felt he was possibly disturbed enough to do something this horrific or no chance i don't know i mean i i think you know parents in a lot of ways do know their children better than anybody else you certainly see their mannerisms and their behavior and you can tell if they're they're lying or not but um I can't imagine what they're going through. Um, I, I think that any parent would be really horrified to think that their child could be capable of such a violent and horrific crime. And so, um, you know, it, it's certainly some of the some of the things that we've heard are certainly suspicious about him traveling cross country with his dad and, you know, cleaning out his car when he was found. I, I mean, those types of things, I, I wonder 
you know, it, it would seem to me that would be hard to ignore. But, um, you know, like I said, I, I can't I can't imagine that it's almost this like level of can you even allow yourself to go there as a parent? So I, I'm not sure. By the way, when you live in Idaho, you look like these three. You're hearty. You're healthy. You're sitting in a log cabin like Tara. Kevin Fixler runs up the sides of mountains and stuff. Jean Fisher looks like she's retired because she is. Uh, that's what happens when you're out in Idaho and not sitting in traffic all day. Uh, Marianne Engel. Uh, this is for Jean. The accused has the right to a speedy trial. Do the victims have rights as to how long they have to wait for justice? That's a great question. Is there anything on the books about that? Um, <clears throat> I mean, there are victims' rights in Idaho that that say that victims have a right to be notified of all proceedings and to be notified of any negotiations, pleas, those sorts of things. But as far as like a timeline goes, there's no right for victims to have it done in a certain amount of time. They, you know, the the, the victims' rights statute incorporates that we that treat that victims are treated with um, dignity and respect, and that they are kept um, informed, but. Um, no, otherwise it's not. I mean, we, you know, we have, a, we have some rules, um, that reflect that if you have an indicted case versus, a a case that came up through a preliminary hearing, um, that the indicted case, um, has priority. Um, but in something like this, um, I'm sure that the families are talking to the prosecutors and the prosecutors are doing the best that they can to assuage their concerns and let them know that they're doing everything that they can um, and reminding them that it is a death penalty case and everything that they do and every motion that they have, um, they, you know, they're trying to be as careful as they can. And as, as Tara had said, um, if there is a conviction, actually, because it's a drug, because it is a uh, death penalty, it, it, there's an automatic appeal, automatic. Um, and so all of these issues uh, that are, that have been uh, litigated, all of Ann Taylor's motions, her every, all of her legal questions and everything that she's doing will be closely scrutinized um, because it, there will be an automatic appeal against her um, on ineffective assistance of counsel. It happens every time it's automatic and, and new counsel will get appointed should there be an appeal and a conviction. Um, Fix to you, that's, that's a very great point about the automatic appeal. Um, Penn Dizzy here says, um, I don't buy it's Brian Koberger fix. And I saw a comment in the chat earlier saying that he was set up and the crime scene is staged. Um, are you surprised by these sorts of comments, Kev, or is this just par for the course when you've got a high profile case? Um, there's going to be, be people, um, I guess, on both sides, but also um, hate to use the C word, but conspiracy theorists who come out and say this whole thing was staged, done by someone else. But is it surprising to you as a reporter to see comments like that? Uh, I might answer in a way you might not expect because uh, Brian Koberger is a suspect. He is a defendant. He is innocent until proven guilty. And so it's almost surprising to see that so many people have convicted him before we even go to trial, perhaps. Uh, and that's a great point. And um, I, I forget who it was. There was an attorney on very recently on our show who says that there's now a presumption of guilt in this country. I almost feel like you were on that panel, that there's a presumption of guilt, not innocence in this country because 
of things like social media and you know there's just such like a, a media landscape now where the the minute someone is arrested and in custody people assume that they're guilty do you find that at all tara that there is a sort of um jump to conclusions a presumption of guilt as opposed to what constitutionally is supposed to be a presumption of innocence you know i i, I don't know that i necessarily agree with that i i think that by the uh, way your audio is beautiful so oh good okay i'm glad it's better i got i got yes. a private message about that so <laughs> um <laughs> which i appreciate uh you know i i think that like we talked about before i think that social media and i think that news coverage certainly amplifies certain comments and commentary but i don't know that i would agree that there's a presumption of guilt um you know at the end of the day the the decision is going to be made by especially in this case going to be made by a jury and and what my experience has been is that um, jurors take their job extremely seriously. I mean, they kind of transform when they're sitting in the juror box versus, you know, out and about and when people are posting comments on social media. And, and so they're really going to be looking at the instructions of law that the um, judge is going to be giving them and making a decision based on that. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the, the, there is a presumption of innocence and those jury instructions really reinforce that that the prosecution has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a really high bar. And so, you know, and, and I think that um, when you're in the room and when you're, when you're looking at a person who's a suspect or, or accused sitting there at counsel's table, observing them, watching their mannerisms, I mean, it really drives home, especially in a death penalty case, you know, it really drives home that you are, you are going to be deciding the fate of this individual. And so, you know, I, I, I would just say that I don't think that it has gone away. I think on the outside, perhaps that's the way that we're viewing it, but it's different once you step inside that courtroom. Yeah. Look at this from my friend PSS, the surgeon. Joining late, finishing the OR, I think it was Rashbaum, who was the Adelson's defense attorney who said presumption of guilt. Also, Kevin is a cutie. STS singles. and might become a real thing one of these days. Um, the surgeon and the journalist. Uh, what a pairing. <laughs> what a pairing. I got to get STS singles um, in the in the in the uh, in the flow. Got to get it going. Um, I have no idea. I think this is a soundbite. Let's listen together. Um, here we go. This should be from yesterday's hearing here. Here it is. Your Honor, to meet our constitutional duties in Brian's case, his rights to have effective assistance of counsel, to have a full investigation, to have a fair trial. We have to have investigators. Those investigators are on board and have been on board, and they help us understand things that are given to us by the state. They help us find witnesses. They help us find experts, and they're necessary to be part of the conversation of what the IgG materials are and what they mean. This matters in figuring out how Mr. Koberger ends up on the police radar and subject to these proceedings here. Hmm. Uh, Fix, I know you weren't there, but this is actually kind of tied into this big story you wrote um, about investigative gen genetic genealogy. And I'm, I'm going to kind of deconstruct that a little bit more. But broadly speaking, uh, your story basically said that, um, and I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing your work and you'll say it much better, but that IgG, which is this new technology, which is is what led police 
But then the state never really revealed that to the defense. Um, and that is very problematic. Um, what, 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 what did you, how did you understand what she was just saying? Well, let me stop you there. We're not sure if it's problematic. There's okay. arguments from the state that they never had to mm -hmm. reveal this information. It was not required through uh, rules of law here in uh, Idaho. And uh, my understanding, I can't say this definitively, but my understanding is that the FBI, when they involve themselves in cases like this, they actually tell uh, law enforcement, don't put this information into a probable cause affidavit. Uh, it's not required. And uh, it was a bit of a surprise for a lot of legal and uh, DNA experts I spoke with for that story that the level of IgG records, which had to be uh, ordered by the court uh, as taken from the FBI, uh, they were surprised that, they, that the defense has uh, been able to get that amount of IgG records uh, through discovery. So in that case, Judge Judge did award that. Uh, we don't know to what extent because, again, it was filed under seal. But uh, and there is a protective order of some extent too, um, probably to protect the names of the individuals who may may be related to Brian Koberger, uh, distant relatives who probably don't even know. Um, but yeah, so we we don't know yet if it's problematic. But in terms of what she's arguing for there, uh, Ann Taylor has claimed at that hearing, as we just heard the clip, and then the one prior, that the defense still doesn't fully know how police ultimately landed on Brian Koberger. Uh, if you read just the probable cause affidavit, uh, you have to take that to mean that they used cell phone records, they used video surveillance that seemed to show a white sedan that may or may not have been a uh, Hyundai Elantra. Uh, they believed it initially was between 2011 and 2013 model, but it turned out to be 2015. And the uh, FBI analysis uh, later revealed that, oh, well, it could be between 2011 and 2016. So. Uh, Koberger's vehicle could fit into that scope. But it, we learned later, six months after Brian Koberger's arrest, that the FBI had pursued this technique. It's an advanced DNA technique. Uh, watchers will know about uh, the Golden State Killer was caught this way, or at least initially identified. Um, but it does raise these constitutional questions. Um, she was raising a Sixth Amendment argument about uh, effective counsel. Uh, when we start talking about the IgG question, though, primarily we're talking about uh, the Fourth Amendment searches and seizures. Um, but there is in kind of a it may be far flung. We don't know the details about it, but there could be a Fifth Amendment argument, perhaps, of uh, self-incrimination if Brian Koberger's own DNA profile was used by law enforcement to basically get a direct hit with DNA that he say was found at the crime scene and uh, land directly on him if he did not permit law enforcement to use his DNA profile that way. Uh, Gene, you're smart. Anything to add on to that? I mean, we're going to dig into it a little bit more, but um, this well, is becoming a big issue. Yeah. I, you know, I think um, obviously there's, there's some more information there that will be revealed, but I'm thinking about, you know, when, when defendants, um, when suspects get, get, this is not Brian Koberger, but when suspects um, go to jail on certain crimes, um, possession uh, on drugs, certain sex cases, um, a certain classifications of drugs, they go into the jail and they have to give their DNA sample and it goes into the national database, which can then be used you know, forever um, to help identify um, should they be involved in crimes much later in the future. So 
I, you know, I had a case a long time, several years ago, where actually the defendant, a woman um, from the University of Idaho, had been kidnapped. Um, she was transported across county lines. She was raped multiple times in the back of a truck um, by by the father and the son. Um, and we didn't identify the defendant in that case for 10 years um, until he got rearrested in Florida. Um, and he had had a possession with intent uh, to deliver, which required a DNA sample. So law enforcement gets a hit on that and they can't use that to arrest him, but they can certainly use the DNA to say, huh, we've got a match. So then they go to Florida, they go find him in Florida, then they get a buccal swab, then they do the DNA, you know, that, and that's how they get him. In the end, it's kind of like that with Koberger. Now, you know, they ended up matching, they got DNA, as I understand it, from his garbage can in Pennsylvania. They, um, you know, they, they, they got there. And if it's if this initially was from, you know, a, the genealogical studies for, that people voluntarily put their DNA in and they were able to figure that out from on a family tree, I just, I think there's going to be a, I understand they want to make this a really big constitutional argument, but I think it's going to be very difficult given just how far we've already come with DNA already and how we are able to make cases based on that. And, and you know, gene, you know, we have DNA databases uh, for really, for lots, for a lot, for these very reasons. By the way, Kevin Fixler, who I call the fix, uh, reports on all of this for the Idaho Statesman and uh, local journalism is the only real journalism, the network stuff. That's all, that's all histrionics and drama if you want the real journalism you go to the idaho statesman support local journalism and uh, the fix has done some amazing articles but this story and i took notes on it so i'm going to get back to him on some of that but marianne angle here is it possible for tara to explain why there is still a gag order i assume it's because everything we're talking about it's a small place with a lot of media and a lot of you know that just the high profile nature of this case is, is that right or am i wrong Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, that there are some ethical rules around attorneys making statements to the media while a case is ongoing, but but also, especially in this case, in light of the publicity it's already receiving, both locally and nationally, um, you know, and, and the risk of tainting a prospective jury pool. Now, there may be a change of venue that may or may not be granted, but, um, you know, I think that the court is taking all precautions necessary to to try and make sure that um, this individual is given a, a fair trial and that both sides are have the ability to choose uh, jurors that are going to be fair and impartial here. Um, Fix, back to you from Amy Lee here, and this is what we were just talking about. Um, if the prosecution isn't going to use the IgG material, that's the investigative genetic genealogy, the stuff that Fix was talking about that helped catch the Golden State Killer and is being used a lot more to catch killers. Um, and they did say, I think at least at the onset, that they weren't planning to use it at trial. Um and, and that's what the question is. How does this affect the case in total? What's that is their strongest piece of evidence. How can they go to trial and not use that? Well, like Gene mentioned, there's the buccal swab. And what they do is that when they made the arrest, uh, the search warrant provided for the opportunity to swab Brian Koberger's cheek. They then, uh, again, this is all according to police, they and, and the prosecution, they then directly match that with uh, the DNA that was found on the knife sheath uh, on the bed. Um, 
as a reminder, there was a, a knife sheath, a leather knife sheath that was left behind uh, at the crime scene. Uh, the order there is that the Idaho uh, State Police Crime Lab here, uh, just outside of Boise, actually finds single source male DNA. Uh, they then ran that through the national database that Gene talked about, referred to uh, widely as CODIS. They didn't get any match. And so then they actually incorporate a, uh, a private lab. We believe that to be Authram out of Texas. Uh, they do a lot of cold cases and so forth. It's never been officially confirmed, but what we do know is that the uh, state of Idaho has an active contract with Authram uh, with the intent for any forensic DNA uh, research. And so it's almost certain that it was Authram and Taylor has said that it was Authram that was involved, but uh, it's never been definitively proven or stated. Uh, Authram has actually never gotten back to me on any number of requests over the months. But uh, they, the defense, or the, excuse me, the prosecution also says that uh, with regards to the trash that was taken from uh, the Koberger family's home in eastern Pennsylvania, they then match uh, the knife sheath DNA to uh, what was Koberger's father uh, with almost 100% certainty that uh, they have said that uh, the DNA found on the knife sheath, uh, it was the uh, male child of the individual whose DNA they looked at. So that would have been Koberger's father. Uh, this potentially raises a Fourth Amendment issue of searches and seizures, except that there is court precedent where police do not have to get a search warrant to take your garbage away if you have left it out at the curb. That's different than if they enter your home or they take it from your physical property. So they didn't need a search warrant. They matched the DNA there. They ultimately get their arrest uh, through the probable cause affidavit and search warrants. And then they match Koberger's DNA directly to the knife sheath, they say. The issue there is that they sort of shortcutted the system by using investigative genetic genealogy and built this family tree and got, you know, a suspect and they understand, you know, the geography. Well, Gosh, it's somebody from the Koberger family lineage. Are there any Kobergers in the region? And then they start to do, you know, more traditional police techniques. They kind of reverse engineer it. They look for phone records. They look for, oh, well, what kind of car does he have? And so that's what's in the probable cause affidavit. But the potential issue, again, is that they never identified this information in the probable cause affidavit. The prosecution never intended to present it at trial, but it may actually work now that the defense has the records that they will actually present it at trial, but that will have to be approved by the judge. It's never been done, as far as I understand, from legal and DNA experts. That's that's really interesting, and it could impact this whole case and other cases going forward. Um, so, investigative genetic genealogy uh, becoming a player in the in the uh, judicial system. From Aria Dakota Grimaldi Lane, uh, what do you do when you have no alibi? You can't come up with one. So, I guess just driving around and happened to be in the vicinity of a quadruple murder. Well, that couldn't look any worse now. Um, that was one of the issues, Gene, that came up uh, at trial, at uh, the hearing yesterday, not at trial. Um, that was my wishful, wishful thinking to get this started already. Um, both sides argued Wednesday over this alibi deadline. Um, the defense, Ann Taylor, said she needs an expert um, investigation on cell towers because her client was doing more than just driving. But the state is opposed to this, saying that the defense might be trying to get a look at the discovery material to actually form an alibi. I'm confused because I thought both sides 
have the right to the same discovery. Break this down for us. What's going on here? This is um, a bit of gamesmanship between state and defense here, but it revolves around this whole alibi. I just, you know, I really think that that Ann Taylor is trying to be as, you know, as effective as she can. I mean, the, he's on the cell towers and they definitely have some they definitely have some cell tower pings that are, you know, marking where he's been driving around. Um, if 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 Brian Cobra really had a defense, I mean, really has an alibi and he says, I was in. Troy, Idaho, not in Moscow, Idaho, and I was in Troy, and Troy is 15 miles over the ridge. Um, I mean, t- just just tell us. I mean, tell us where you were if this wasn't you, um, so that the state can go and find the right person, because we have no interest in trying to convict the wrong murderer of a quadruple homicide uh, of this nature. So um, for them to, I, this is just, to me, this is just gamesmanship in some way it's it's aggressive defense tactics to try and say i need the i need the cell tower information to look closer at it to see if i can figure out a way that my client might have been somewhere i don't i don't really know where she hopes to go with that but it's but the law on alibi defense is very clear in idaho where you are supposed to be able to provide it within a within a tight timeline for the very reason that we are not interested in have a prosecuting somebody who didn't do it but if you and if you didn't do it, tell us you didn't do it so we can prove you didn't do it and clear you because that's important. Um, and we don't want you authenticate, I mean, making something up. Um, in a case like this, you know, you've all talked about social media. We've all talked about how much history and, and how much has gone on here. You know, it, it, you just wait before there's somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, oh, yeah, I think I did see Brian Koberger. I saw him at the, you know, at somewhere, somewhere else. Um, that they try to introduce themselves into the middle of this trial when there's no information about that at all. And Brian Koberger himself isn't saying, I saw anybody else. I didn't buy a pop. I didn't buy a coffee. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't talk to anyone. If you did, tell us. Um, But that's not what they're doing. So I think this is really much more about some gamesmanship, quite frankly. Uh, interesting. And it, it's just, it was just such a weird alibi that they kind of initially presented that he's just driving around um, as if it was so innocent. Um, Tara ran for state Senate in Idaho. Uh, there you go again. I'm literally, this is, she does this every time. I'm just about to read the comment. She wants to know why so much weird stuff is going on in um, Idaho and Utah. Uh, this is a person from overseas. I think it was Sweden. And the comment was, why is so much weird stuff happening in Idaho and Utah? Tara, have at it. <laughs> What's your know. guess? Well, that's a hard one. It's harder than the other ones you've been asking. Yeah, I mean, I, I said you guys are so relaxed and like hearty looking, but I guess there's some nuts <laughs> right. out there too. No, I, I don't know what, what weird stuff they're referring to. I mean, but we've, we, you know, we did have the Vallow case. We did have, uh, we do have the Koberger case, not not sure what's happening there, but we are, it, it's a nice state. You should come visit. I hundred percent will. We were in Sun Valley and this is a comment from Anna Maria, Anna Maria from Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, COE, I just want to make sure I have the right clip. Is this it? Let's see if this is a different clip. Let's play it. She wanted us to play it. Here we go. I want all the discovery by the end of August. I loved the discovery deadline by September 6th. That does not allow me enough time to get ready for trial by March 3rd. That deadline, that cutoff for us to get mitigation materials, that that's impossible. 
that's just impossible. We've got the year pretty well scheduled out with what travel still needs to happen and what records still need to be obtained. So to have to have that to the state, I think they said by September, October, that that's just impossible. I would request that this court take up our venue motion in May, make a decision on venue, and let's see where we can get with the discovery. I still need to read every bit of discovery that's come, and I haven't. I scan it when I get it, but to go page by page and read it and understand what it means, I'm not through 2023. I have a long ways to go. So I don't think that that is realistic to set it. I think if you set it for March, I'm going to be back here after the discovery deadline, and I'm going to be telling you there's no way that we're going to be ready for trial. I would. And that's it. Um, Gene Fisher, you've been in many courtrooms and you've been uh, across from uh, defense attorneys. What would you say to, to Judge Judge in response to what was just said there? I understand it's complicated, but I, you know, from a prosecution point of view, I, I, I just can't help, but I'm just kind of marveling at this. I mean, I, I understand there's a lot. You've got to go through it. Um, but I, but I'm kind of surprised at the level of her, her, of her angst that she just possibly can't get through this discovery in that amount of time. Um, you know, I, I'm just surprised. I, I know it's a big case, but, um, yeah, get to work. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here and I, and I know that she's got to represent other people. Um, but so does the state, you know, and so does the judge. I mean, everybody's got more than just one case in this deal. Um, but I'm having a hard time understanding, you know, how it is that she thinks she, you know, it's just hard for me to imagine that she can't figure out enough about this um, issue with, and she's identified its its genealogy and she's identified what the problem is. Um, and it's going to take her six months to figure this out. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand that. I don't. Yeah. Uh, fix. When fact, I do think that the child's wagging the dog a little bit on this one. Yeah. It sounds like it, even like the um, inflection and stuff that she has in court, it feels like she's like trying to take command of the situation a little bit with, with judge judge. But um, what is the, uh, th this fix when I was in local news, anytime there was a story about anything, it was always, how does this affect the uh, taxpayers? We have to scurry out and figure out how does it affect the taxpayers? Um, I was wondering the same thing. It seems like they're sparing no expense for um, Brian Koberger's defense. Do we have any idea what it will cost taxpayers? There was a story, and forgive me, I don't remember the outlet, but they did look at what Ann Taylor makes hourly. Uh, Tara or uh, Jean might know a little bit more about this, so forgive me. But um, I mean, what I will say just generally is that death penalty cases. Uh, we're talking millions and millions of dollars through the appeals process. Um, you know, the defense has three attorneys right now, plus they'll pay for, you know, their own experts and things like that. And these are permitted uses of taxpayer dollars uh, when you have a public defense, which you know, Brian Koberger can't afford millions of dollars. And so that's why there is a public defender. But uh, perhaps our attorney friends here know more about the actual costs. Well, there's there's some some stuff coming up in the chat that's interesting. Andy Kay has always got great questions. Friend of the show, it seems Ann Taylor is almost uh, to you, Tara, obstructionist in her request for delays and uh, complaints. Followed by this from Kerry Rawson, 
our good friend. I agree with uh, Gary. I think she's talking about Gary Bricado here, who studies serial killers, um, and even speculatively wonder if he's on purpose going for an IgG battle in higher courts because he's enjoying this. There are some people. Look at this. Look at this. This is Gary Bricado himself. Make no mistake that Brian Koberger is pulling st strings through his lawyers, amusing himself like a puppet master as he has been from the start. The courts are colluding with him unwittingly. This is Gary. Uh, it is characteristic of people of his apparent type to do so. Uh, Gary studies these people for a living. Tara Malik, what do you make of that, that he is literally enjoying feeding these bits of information to his attorney to have them uh, run around at his behest. L one last comment here from Gary, not last one, but this one. The court is like the cop he bamboozled out of a ticket at a traffic stop. It makes him feel powerful. Remember that? We had the um, video of him at that traffic stop in Pullman at Washington State, and he was asking that cop a million questions about, is it, I, I understand in Pennsylvania, the intersection is okay, but here in Pullman, it's not okay to be blah, 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 blah. But this is what Gary is saying. Tara, do you agree with Gary's bottom line question? Well, I, I, I mean, I would defer to Gary, obviously. This is what he does, <laughs> not what I do. So, um, but personally, what do I feel about it? I, you know, I, I, I think that it's very probable um, that he is, getting some sort of thrill out of being the center of attention or trying to outsmart people. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, just, just what he was studying, you know, his criminal justice kind of background that he was studying and then to do this and turning his phone off and, you know, onto airplane mode during the time and just these little bits and things. I, I don't think that Gary is wrong. Um, you know, as far as the question about um, you know, Ann Taylor and whether or not she's playing the system. A, time passing is not a friendly thing for a prosecutor. And that's because people's memories changes, your evidence rarely gets better, it gets worse. Um, and so delays are not unheard of. It can be a tactic for trial. Um, you know, I, I understand that there's a lot of discovery here. A lot of that has been exchanged, but but also um, you know, she has a team of attorneys. She's not working on this case solo. She has a team of investigators that are um, for sure working on this with her. And and I, you know, on the IGG stuff, I, first of all, I don't know how much Brian Koberger knows about it, maybe more now than, than you know, in the beginning, but I, I just don't, I don't see it as big of an issue as I think they're trying to make it out to be. I mean, I, I think that um, I have a hard time coming up with a scenario where, you know, that's going to be this this crux of the case where everything gets tossed on some sort of Fourth Amendment violation, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree type of argument. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think it's been fully fleshed out yet either. And so perhaps they're thinking about it in a different way. But, but you know, there's these are certainly tactics. I, I think we're going to see a lot of pretrial motions before we get to, to um, court and to trial, whether it's set in March or later in 2025. Um, I think that the judge is still going to be cautious, though. Again, it's these are high stakes here. Um, 
I don't necessarily buy that the mitigation evidence is going to be the thing or the the mitigation work that Ann Taylor was talking about is going to take that long to gather and put together. I think a better argument would probably be, you know, there's still a lot of discovering. We're still fighting over what has to be turned over on the IgG. And and I need time to put together a pretrial motion on whether or not to move to suppress some of this evidence. I think that would be probably more persuasive. Uh, Frankie Figs is one of our amazing mods. They all do an amazing job. Why doesn't anyone, Gene Fisher, address that the prosecution won't have their discovery completely to the defense until September? Um, is there uh, blame to lay on the state here for uh, dragging their feet? I don't. I don't know that there has necessarily is a delay. I mean, I I do think that the state has been operating under um, under some. Um, pretext for how IgG information has been generated and that there are definitely privacy issues and that this defense is pushing this issue um, uh, aggressively and the state is aggressively trying to protect some uh, privacy rights. Um, you know, not everything gets thrown in um, in the kitchen sink in this stuff and the state really does have um, a, a powerful um, right to protect the privacy uh, rights of people who who shouldn't who shouldn't have to have to answer to this or get thrown into the middle of this. And so I think that the you know that the they're they're doing what they can, um, but they're still they're also doing it under this this idea of you know with the genealogy charts and what the, and what the defense is asking, and they are pushing back in order to protect privacy rights. So that's where I think they're at. By the way, Gary, uh, I, I want to get to this question, so I'm not bringing up his comment, but he says, Joel, remember, we called this before there was even a suspect. It, it is true. If you go back and listen to, to Dr. Ann Burgess and Dr. Gary Ricardo before uh, they you know, came upon Brian Koberger just after the, the murders, I had Ann and Gary on and they profiled him almost to a T. So, uh Gary and Ann, obviously, uh, you know, the best of what they do. And uh, that's a good point. Well taken from Dr. Gary Bricado. Um, from Linda Johnson Dulas, um, to you, Kevin, I know you weren't there yesterday, but bigger picture here. Understand someone referred to DNA results during the hearing, and I took it to mean there's more than just a knife sheath. Did anyone else pick up on this comment? Have, have you and your reporting heard of any other DNA um, that was either, you know, found or been investigated, uh, you know, by uh, police. Ann Taylor had raised the point that there were some uh, DNA profiles that uh, were discovered outside of the home or inside the home as well. She mentioned actually a glove that was discovered outside, and there's been a lot of curiosity about that. Uh, but no more additional information. As you noted, there's a gag order still in place, and the defense and the prosecution are not speaking to those things. But her question was, why didn't those DNA profiles get run through CODIS? Uh, and I'm trying to recall what Bill Thompson said. I think I think either they they were or uh, they, there wasn't enough DNA in order to actually run it through the system. Um, so that's the DNA I've heard of in terms of anything else that would be used uh, in the case at trial, et cetera. Uh, we just don't know. You know, the evidence we know about was from the probable cause affidavit and anything that's come out in court thus far. Uh, once more, we do know about, in terms of DNA, we know about what they discovered on the knife sheath. We know about the buccal swab from Brian Koberger, Brian Koberger directly, and we know about uh, his father's DNA that was taken from the trash. So that's the extent of any DNA evidence that we know about to this point. 
Uh, shout out to friend of the show, Analytical Blarney, gifting five memberships. And then this one, I think this has to do with buccal buckle swab. Dentist here, we call it buccal mucosa. Just FYI, might be just a West Coast thing, question mark. Uh, buccal, buccal, I've heard it every possible way. Um, to you, uh, Gene, what, you know, you said get to work. And I'm wondering how... I'd be so overwhelmed by the amount of material in this case. I mean, what does Ann Taylor take us like, what is her day like? What does she have to go through? How does she go through all this? I'm not sure if I'm the best person to answer that either. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I know what it takes for me. I suspect, I mean, she's, she's in a firm for public defenders in Kootenai County. There's definitely other lawyers and I'm sure that this case is her priority. Um, and you know, it's 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 a matter of 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 literally um, kind of outlining her case, outlining what her issues are, and and just you know one step after another, getting through the materials and listing out, you know, what are the legal issues, and and just charting out her case. Um, you know, the prosecutors have to do the same thing. Um, when I take a case to trial, literally, I end up doing the the closing before I do the opening. I mean, I I want to know that I know my case so well that I actually write the closing before I even do the opening in my case. Um, and that's when I know I, I got it. I, I know where all the evidence is and, and where the surprises are going to be. So, you know, her job is to poke holes. Um, it only takes one juror. Um, this is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And all 12 uh, jurors sitting there have to agree. And her job is to poke holes. Um, and, and that is her job. Um, but I, I think that, she, you know, it's a big job. Um, and, you know, it's not going to fall on any deaf ears, of course, that four, you know, four people were murdered. And um, uh, it's, you know, it's going to take a lot to get this case. Like I, like, like Tara had mentioned, it would take a lot to get this case thrown out on some Fourth Amendment um, question um, that they've got brought up on this IGG. But, um, you know, you list out your witnesses and you divide and conquer and you start figuring it out. Um, a few more things on. Uh... Brian Koberger. And then I do want to touch uh, with Kevin on there was this botched execution yesterday, which is kind of crazy. Uh, we'll talk about that for a few minutes and then we'll wrap in a little while. But uh, Gary back saying the idea is that it would insult such a person like Brian Koberger to be a quote unquote, um, simple to solve case. Um, so, uh, you know, he is complicating matters per Gary from behind the scenes. Hey, SCS, I'm driving in the rain, but listening closely. Great show as usual. Thank you so much. Be careful in the rain. Joel, I listen every day on Apple Podcasts, but really catch a uh, live. Stoke right now. We are stoked to have you, Madison Cox. Also, if you are listening on audio, please, please give us five stars. It helps us immensely. You have no idea. Adam Malone says, Gary is the absolute best. Brilliant man. Funny guy, too. Uh, one of the questions I most want answered when the facts emerge did the sheath fall off because the offender opened a belt? And if he opened a belt, was there a partially sexual motivation? This is what Gary Bricado thinks about day and night. Um, wouldn't cross my mind, but now that he mentions it, um, makes a lot of sense. And I guess eventually, maybe, who knows, maybe we will find out. Um, love to get you and Ann back on, Gary. Wesley John Holmes, the Aussie living in Tokyo, who also, when when we mentioned STS singles, said, "Look, what about us married people? We've got we've got issues." And he was suggesting setting up a marriage uh, 
like a self-help group. Not a bad idea, Wesley John Holmes. Uh, BK is probably reveling in all this, especially being a death penalty case. It has the potential for him to be in the spotlight for many years to come with with appeals that found guilty. I get it, but I don't get it because you're still sitting your sorry ass in a jail and uh, life can't be too good. But uh, maybe he is getting off on this. Uh, there's no doubt about this that Gary and Ann know their stuff. Um, this is I took this right from Kevin Fixler's article prior to most uh, people's thinking. I do prepare for this show um, almost always, if not always. Uh, this quote is taken directly from Fix's article uh, from Ann Taylor. And she says, the clear picture that I am concerned about is the state's pathway of how Brian Koberger comes to their attention and is identified over a year into this case, and we're not sure. I know different pieces, but I don't know where they fit together. I mean, Kev, you talked about this earlier, but she's saying, I have no idea how they, they came to this guy. Um, does she need to know, and should she have known this months ago? Uh, I appreciate that Gene had a smirk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have some idea, right? I, I yeah. do believe they're playing this up in court a little bit, but it's been effective to this point in arguing before Judge Judge. Uh, it did ultimately get them the IgG records that they saw from the FBI through the state. So again, they do have some idea. The state has said that uh, the initial uh, identification of Koberger came through the building of this family tree via um, some genetic genealogy. Uh, one of these websites, we don't know which one police used or the FBI in this case. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they have some idea, but they're arguing that they need more information in order to fully yeah. comprehend and understand it to put up their case. Yeah. And remember, um, I mean, we're spending all this time on IgG, but um, early on with the alibi defense, um, when the state was pushing for this, you know, Koberger, um, right, he didn't have to answer anything, of course, but, but he was under going to give an alibi defense. And they produced that he was out that this is his pattern that he drives all over. And if they saw his car, it's because he was, he was driving and that's, he's the night owl and he drives all around and that's what he does. And he really, by answering that, and it will come back on them. Um, he took away a big piece of their alibi defense because he's not saying he wasn't there. Um, in fact, they said that this is what he does. Uh, and that's how they answered it in a court document. So I know we're spending a lot of time on the IgG, but remember, they've answered some other stuff earlier where they have essentially given up that idea of the alibi because they said, yeah, we, he, he drives around and that's what he does. Um, and cooperated. So, yeah, and they cooperated. Did. I mean, in a way, like that alibi quote unquote alibi, and I use that term really loosely here, corroborates part of the state's theory of the case. So it's yep. like, why say anything? You know, yeah. it's when that came out, it was so bizarre because it's like, I wouldn't, if that's the best you can do, don't say anything. Just don't yeah. say anything at all. So yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of time moving away from that, but it will come back to this um, because they, uh, they, they, they gave a big gift, I think. Dr. Vonda Kay, she's in the chat. She's a friend of the show. She's here often. She says Angie Dodge's killer was found using IgG in Idaho. A lot more uh, killers are getting caught that way. Uh, Marilyn from uh, Tarot Clarity. Um, Fix, I'm going to throw this one to you. I wonder if anyone on the jury will have had any exposure 
uh, to Brian Koberger. I think it's BK, not KB. Uh, that area is small, and it will be hard to find folks who have never encountered them. Um, I know you've sp- you know you don't live in Moscow, but I know you've spent time there. Is it small enough that it would if they don't get jurors from somewhere other than there that someone that, that, that there's a good chance that one of the jurors will have come across this guy? That would be pretty hard to believe uh, because I believe that the the defense would, you know, try to strike that particular individual. I think anybody, I mean, we're talking about encountering him. If we're talking about somebody who's, you know, watched the show or, uh, you know, read the newspaper, uh, is that an encounter? You're, it seems like they're talking about direct. And I think anybody who would have had a direct experience with him would, would not qualify for the jury. Uh, I don't think either side would probably want that. Uh, it's the prop, the population up there is about 30,000. And, uh, I believe I reported recently, it's about 20,000 voters, which is kind of a derivative of, uh, the number of potential juror jurors in the, in the pool. Um, I grew up in a town of 30,000, uh, in suburban New Jersey. And I don't want to say everyone knew everybody. That's certainly not the case, but a, a lot of us knew a lot of each other, but to say that everyone knows everybody, um, in a town of 30 or 20,000 people, I think that's a stretch, but um, it's certainly more likely than if you live in uh, New York City, let's say. Um, Brian Koberger was living in Pullman. So, you know, that's across the state line. I mean, you're talking about another good point. Yeah, it's not even the same state. Uh, Great point, actually. Seven miles away, I think, but different state, different city, all that. Um, Gene, this is the quote that um, the DA gave uh, in Latok County uh about the igg and he's it goes as follows bill thompson the igg process pointed law enforcement toward brian koberger but it did not provide law enforcement with substantive evidence of guilt the igg information is not material to the preparation of the defense this is something you'd be saying um is that is that a strong enough statement to push ann taylor back a little bit uh, I, mean, I, I think it's a strong enough statement in, in, so far in that um, courts have agreed with Bill Thompson so far. Um, now, this, you know, this is it's still obviously uh, new and, and young in legal theory and, and, and genetics is growing very, very quickly and getting a lot more mature, a lot faster. But, um, you know, it, they there wasn't something, I mean, yes, they did get a lead from the IGG about uh, the Kohlberger family tree, I suppose, if that's what you're going to go for. But they, you know, it didn't lead them directly to Brian Kohlberger. Um, I mean, they had to go then do all the investigative work and do all the rest of the tips and do all, everything else that they needed to do. Yeah, thank God that we, you know, that this is advancing and that cold cases are being solved and people are getting answers to, you know, some of these horrendous, you know, case unsolved cases with serial murders um, that have been unresolved. And and I think that that's, um, I think that's really important. I mean, Angie Dodge, like, like as mentioned earlier, um, you know, somebody else uh, was serving time for that case um, that didn't do it. Um, until the IgG, until the you know genetics came through on this, um, and and he was uh, cleared, and somebody else was convicted. So, you know, it's it's got its purpose for sure. Yeah, well, it's definitely getting harder and harder to be a, a good uh, criminal, and especially a good killer. Uh, such a phrase could uh, even be invoked, but uh, yeah, this IgG is starting to 
really have a big impact. I got to know uh, the $2 super chat here, botched death penalty case in Idaho yesterday. For the first time in state history, this is straight from Fix's story once again. I guess you could call that plagiarism. Idaho prison officials on Wednesday weren't unable to successfully carry out a lethal injection when members of the execution team could not locate a suitable vein to insert an IV into death row prisoner Thomas Creech. Fix, you said to me early yesterday, yeah, I'm going to come on and talk Koberger unless it's kind of a crazy day. And then I see this headline. I'm like, <laughs> oh boy, I just lost my guest. Then I had a call or talk to Fix last night. I was at a dinner and I was telling him he still got to come on. So he was nice enough to, to do this. But what the hell happened? Before we get there, what is Thomas Creech uh, convicted of and why was he in there and for how long? Thomas Creech has been incarcerated for Idaho in Idaho for almost 50 years. So that dates to Gerald Ford's administration. Oh uh, this also speaks to death penalty cases just for, uh, you know, a, a point of arguments. Uh, this idea that, oh, yeah, we we convict people, we sentence them to death and then they are executed. Uh, it has taken more than 40 years, more than 40 years in to get him to that point, just based on the level of appeals and uh, the different legal avenues that he's been pulled from death row a couple different times and then resentenced. Uh, it was so to answer your question, he uh, he pled guilty to the murder of a fellow prisoner uh, who he killed in uh, May of 1981. He he beat this person who was uh, partially disabled. He beat them with a sock filled with batteries. He beat them to death. And then when the when the sock broke. Uh, because the batteries had exited a, a hole, he then stomped and uh, kicked the person in the head and throat. So, you know, he has a, a very high profile history. Uh, he had previously been convicted of killing two people by shooting them to death in another portion of Idaho. Uh, he, After the fact, he was convicted of a murder in Sacramento, another in Portland, Oregon. And at points, he had claimed to have killed as many as 42 people. Uh, there's some pretty wild stories. Later, he said it was actually 26. Uh, through my reporting, I believe he's probably somewhere around a dozen at least. But at his clemency hearing last month before the parole board, he was noncommittal about the fact that it was as many as 14. But the fact is, he has killed probably about a dozen people, convicted of five, including three in Idaho. And uh, after years and years of back and forth with death warrants and attempts at execution, he ended up... Uh, before uh, the execution team yesterday, they were not able to find the vein after almost an hour with uh, eight different locations on his body and prison officials called it. So the term botched is being thrown around. His attorneys are certainly claiming that, that this was cruel and unusual. Um, there's some nuance to the, the, the concept of something that's botched. This was certainly an unsuccessful execution, but uh, I heard today the director of uh, the Department of Correction in Idaho, he testified before a House Judiciary Committee here in Idaho that, uh, in fact, the process worked as it should in order to avoid a botched execution because they didn't want what could be the result, uh, putting somebody through cruel and unusual punishment to get the outcome that was desired. Um, Fix, someone had a comment, which I took down by accident myself. It wasn't the COE this time. Um, who likes to do it right as I'm about to ask the question. But there's a commenter who said it's because he dehydrated himself. Um, 
any uh, reporting on that? Uh, I, I personally, I wouldn't have, have even thought of that. But if you're sitting on death row and you've been there for 50 years, you got some time to think about how to get out of it. Do we know if he did intentionally dehydrate, dehydrate himself so they could not find uh, the veins that they needed to? So another piece, Thomas Creech is 73 years old. Uh, harder to catch a vein when you're elderly. Uh, this was actually the dehydration uh, theory was actually addressed also by the director of prisons today. Uh, when you issue a death warrant for uh, a prisoner here in Idaho, uh, it's 30 days out. You set the date and then you're moved from, uh, from death row into a cell that's close to the actual execution chamber. He's put under 24-7 watch. Thomas Creech has actually been identified as a, a very um, cooperative individual within the prison system by prison officials. And the director said today before the House committee that, you know, he's under 24-7 surveillance. He's been cooperative in the months leading up to this. And we didn't notice any sort of change in behavior in terms of uh, anything, including what he was uh, putting into his body, uh, how much water he was drinking, et cetera. So he sort of dispelled that, uh, that theory uh, today before that Judiciary Committee. Did he, did he have a final meal? There he is, Thomas Creech. It's always, I mean, Gary Bricado will tell me no, and Gene will tell me no, and every, but there's something in these eyes all the time. Isn't there something in these eyes? Um, did he have a last meal fix? He did. I mean, what we expected was his last meal. Uh, it was reported <laughs> that he had fried chicken, uh, mashed potatoes and gravy, corn, rolls, and uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that he had uh, pecan butter ice cream. Um, that always amazes me. Like Tara Malik, God forbid, but let's say you're on death row and you're about to be put to, de to death. Would God you be worried? God forbid. Would you, would you be worried about having butter pecan ice? Like, would that be on your, like, would you want a great meal? I, I don't think I would care at that point. I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of a foodie. So maybe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> um, it would be the last thing. Maybe. I don't know. I would have like a, I like bad chocolate, so I'd have a Reese's peanut butter cup maybe, and uh, I don't know, chocolate Hershey bar, pizza, I don't know. It'd be like the last thing on my mind. Um, just to, to kind of round this out, and I'm stealing this admittedly all from uh, the fix here, um, Gene Fisher, I want to get your take on this too. The warden named Tim Richardson, he conferred with the Idaho Department of Correction Director, a guy named Josh Tewalt, about an hour into this attempted execution after medical team members made eight tries in a variety of location uh, locations on Creech's body. They started with his right arm and then his right hand before moving to his left arm and to his lower left leg. Um, Fix is making the point that they avoided a botched execution by doing all this. Um, do you agree with that? Um, or do things have to change? Because this, this seems like Kind wow. of, I'm going to get yeah. yelled at right now. I'm going to say cruel and unusual punishment. This guy sounds like he deserves some cruel and unusual punishment, but we're supposed to be a humane and just uh, society. Is there is there a problem going on now with these injections? Well, okay. Cynically, cruel and unusual would have been that they put an IV in him with a water bag the night before to make sure that he was hydrated. Uh, cruel and unusual might have been that they stuck the IV in his neck and did it. I mean, we have drug addicts who can figure out how to get an IV in their feet. I mean, a, a needle in their in their toes, you know. I just, it's really hard in this instance because 
it's volunteers, it's a death penalty, it's very, very difficult. And these are volunteers that had to agree to come in. I've seen some comments on here where they've said, you know, why didn't they have an ICU nurse or why didn't they have somebody who, who might have been a little bit more medical savvy? Um, but you got to get a volunteer to do that. And and I don't know who they got. Um, I, to the extent that, that Director Tewalt said it would have been botched if they had tried because if they had made entry into a, into a vein and then it didn't, uh, it wasn't inserted properly and it could have been really awful, right? I mean, no, it could have been awful. On the other hand, I'm having a hard time understanding how they just couldn't get this done um, medically. And, and I, you know, I think, um, yeah, I, I just think it's frustrating. And I, and, you know, and the thing is I'm, the Department of Corrections has, has in Idaho has come out and has said that he's, you know, the, the, the man he is today is not the man who he was. They've all talked about him being this model citizen and a great guy and really just a pleasure to work with. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. Um, let's let's uh, let's take this back um, uh, and remember who, who he really is and what he did um, and the victims that he's left behind. Hmm. Um, yeah. Just for those wondering, uh, the fix also pointed out that there was a purchase order obtained by the Idaho statesman. Uh, using public records and prison officials paid 50,000 uh, 50, last fall for 15 grams of pentobarbital. The legal dose is five grams. I guess they got two extra doses uh, or dosages for uh, potentially other victims or other uh, death row inmates. But a uh, fix to you, I already saw um, an opinion piece in the Idaho Statesman that said, this is why we need to switch to the firing squad. Uh, do you think that this will impact, at least within the state of Idaho? Uh, and look, Brian Koberger could be uh, on the receiving end of this. Do you think that we're going to now see the firing squad instead of injections in the state of Idaho, partly because of this? So last year, the firing squad was uh, approved and signed by the governor as a backup method to lethal injections. So lethal injections are still the preferred method here. Uh, the firing squad is available if uh, the lethal injection drugs are not available. Uh, they have been in recent time uh, able to locate those drugs. They're pretty difficult to get anymore. Uh, suppliers won't sell them to prison systems across the country uh, for the use in executions. Uh, they were obtained in Idaho for that amount of money. And uh, there is starting to be that talk, including in the prison system and across the board with state officials, probably the attorney general's office, uh, the governor's office, about whether or not they need to move more quickly to preparing uh, the ability to have the firing squad ready uh, to carry out an execution. So, yes, that is a conversation that is is certainly happening today. Mm. Uh, what a crazy story. Uh, and in spite of all that, the fix did come on. So I appreciate that very much. Um, Tara Malik, appreciate her too. She's a Idaho licensed attorney practicing, practicing in state and federal courts in business and commercial litigation. She bounces all around the state. She also has experience in both civil and criminal law. Tara Malik, where do we go from here? With this uh, case, not light, but with this Which case. Which one? This, this <laughs> well, case, this case, Brian Koberger. With the Koberger. Well, I, I think, you know, we are um, just seeing the, 
the kind of beginnings of this motion practice. We're going to see a lot more of that coming up. Um, I would anticipate if if the defense stays on this path that they seem to be hinting at, uh, we'll likely see a motion to suppress evidence. And that'll be the big uh, next fight for these for these folks, including the change of venue as well and trial dates. But um, I, I think that uh, defense is going to keep doing what they're doing is try and poke holes in the state's case and uh, muddy the waters a little bit here. Uh, Dom's mom gifting five memberships and then uh, Slackjaw, super chat, formerly sensory combustion, now Slackjaw. I've been lurking, enjoying the show, had to jump in for some Tara Malik. There you go. And uh, Gene Fisher, don't ever underestimate Gene Fisher. 33 years, the Ada County Prosecutor's Office in Boise, Idaho, part of the Special Crimes Unit. Uh, in fact, she was the chief of that unit. Uh, Gene Fisher, um, what is next, in your opinion, um, as we wind down this Brian Koberger long road? I agree with Tara. I mean, I, you know, we're going to see start to really see pick up more of these motions um, and some motion practice. Um, it appears that the judge seems to be persuaded to talk about venue before uh, the jury trial um, gets set. Um, at least that's how it. it that's how, maybe that was Kevin's story of how I understood that. Um, but uh, there'll be a number of motion hearings that we need to go, and I don't think we'll see this case until uh, late spring um, or the summer of 2025. It's a long ways off. Uh, Kevin Fixler, the man I call Fix, he's an investigative reporter with the Idaho Statesman. Not only that, he was named Reporter of the Year. If you guys are not reading the Idaho Statesman and you're interested in this case and you are nuts, uh, analytical Blarney AB gifting the five surviving the survivor memberships, get your subscription to the Idaho Statesman uh, fix. I think I've asked you this before, but right now with Brian Koberger, who would be your biggest get on this story? Who would you want to talk to the most right now? Other than Brian, other than Brian. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Ann Taylor. Well, here, I'll say this, the, the Koberger family in general would be, that would be quite a, quite an interview and an opportunity. Um, aside from, you know, whether it's his two siblings or his parents, uh, I would really be interested to, to speak to Ann Taylor. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot about her, but, um, I'd like to know what she's thinking and, and where she goes from here. Um, you know, they've sort of hat tipped where the defense might go, but, um, yeah, I mean, this is a very complicated and complex case, and this is unlike anything I'm sure she's handled in her life, including because of the high profile nature, there's never been uh, a spotlight on her like there is now. And, uh, she's a definitive, uh, individual in how this goes. So that would, that would probably be my answer. Uh, that'd be a, an excellent get. And, uh, Ann, I know you watch this show, so you better, uh, reach out to the fix. You can find him at the Idaho Statesman and, uh, Koberger's. If you're watching this show, uh, fix wants to talk to you too, but, uh, obviously these are the victims. Um, so sad. You got Kaylee Gonzalez, Ethan Chapin, Maddie Mogan, and of course, Zana Kernodal. Um, hopefully that they will see justice sooner than later, but right now it seems like it's going to be a little bit later, uh, with Gene predicting the spring or summer of 2025, but we will stay on this story. Can 
continue to cover it. Uh, thank you to our amazing guests and uh, Gary Bricado and Kerry Rawson for dropping in. Love you, America. Love you, Idaho. Justice for these young victims. See you tomorrow, 5 p.m. with Bill and Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.